welcome back to another episode of Our Concrete Garden, a four-part series hoping to plant some seeds about why urban green spaces are so important for uniting our communities. I'm your host, Rawson. Thus far, we've talked about how humans are intrinsically bonded to plants. We also set the scene on how community gardens can cultivate not only a bounty of food, but maybe a few friendships along the way. Gardening with your peers is an active engagement with nature and your local communities. But to be fair, it's not for everyone. What are you supposed to do if you simply don't have the time or resources to take up gardening? Or maybe you just don't have much of a green thumb? Well, I'd say, just let the city handle that. On this episode of Our Concrete Garden, we're stopping all this talk about community gardens and we're shifting gears. Let's talk about Toronto's parks. The City of Toronto Parks, Forestry and Recreation Department oversees a wide variety of city amenities, including parks, playgrounds, pools, recreation centers, sports fields, beaches, and more. They assist in the management of the four major areas of Toronto, Etobicoke York, Toronto and East York, North York, and Scarborough. Since our series is only interested in green spaces, we're going to narrow down our scope on parks and parkettes, which still comes up to 1,400 in the area. In fact, 13% of Toronto's total land is parkland space, and they're pretty spread out across the city too. It just goes to show you that it all adds up. Parkettes are smaller areas that are usually less than 0.5 hectares of space, and typically they'll have a few benches, maybe some nice trees, or a small playground. Anything bigger than that makes it a bonafide park, which can range from a small size of around one hectare all the way up to a legacy park that's eight or more hectares. To put things into perspective, Christie Pitts Park is about 8.9 hectares, while Riverdale Park is 42 and High Park is 161. Check it out on Google Maps and you can really see the difference. Small parks and parkettes are kind of nice places to chill and eat your lunch on a busy day, and can be a better location for small community-based events. Medium parks typically have more fun amenities for sport or play, like baseball diamonds, playgrounds, splash pads, or a soccer field. Lastly, legacy parks are so huge that they typically become beacons for tourism or major community hangouts for people far and wide. While legacy parks make up more than 75% of Toronto's total park area, the little parkettes make up nearly 40% of the total number of parks. So with all that being said, we have so much park space being maintained by the city. Let's take a deeper dive into the city's long-term plan, otherwise known as the 2019 Parkland Strategy Report. They discuss a few of their thoughts on how they will produce a park system that can support a growing and diversifying city population. First, they list off the values that parks provide, beginning with people's health. We've been talking a lot about how plants calm us, improve our mental and physical health, but on a more active forefront, parks are spaces where we can engage in exercise as well. Whether you're the type to walk through the park after dinner, or if you treat the children's playground like it's Muscle Beach. People also play games and sports, skate in the winter, and maybe you can even sneak into a yoga or tai chi group if you're up early enough. Creating a bond with your park is a special one. 
especially if you don't have a backyard or green space you can turn to in your own home. They're places to relax, go out and get some fresh air and a new view. Better yet, they also become hubs within the neighborhood for community events, farmers markets, live music and performances, and for other gatherings as well. They help to develop the identity of a neighborhood and give some local pride too. Perhaps most importantly, they provide environmental related benefits as well. Trees provide shade and host a number of animals. Wide stretches of grass help to absorb heavy rainfalls after a storm and ease up on the sewer system. Flowers provide sustenance to our local pollinators, and all the plants work together to improve air quality by releasing oxygen. After a dissection like this, we begin to see how important green spaces are at an individual, community, and larger natural scale. The city intends to capture all these perspectives and needs with their park strategy through four guiding principles. Number one, expand. Growing the system by creating new parks and filling in the gaps where people cannot access or fully enjoy the park system. Particularly for those living downtown or midtown, where there's a rapid expansion of people living there. On the other side though, we are also talking about lower income neighborhoods where there might not be any park spaces period. Number two, improve. Building up the existing parks to reach the city's established community, ecological, and health standards for public multifunctional places. Number three, connect. Bridging parks with other open spaces or embedding them more easily within the neighborhoods so people, communities, and wildlife can all navigate through the park system easier. Number four, include. Increasing accessibility in parks by removing barriers for people of all ages, cultures, genders, abilities, and incomes. With those four guidelines, the city is hoping to create a better landscape for the nearly 500,000 new residents that they estimate will be present by 2041, in addition to current Toronto locals. But in the meantime, they're already enacting a few projects. In the first phase of the strategy from 2019, they were hoping to develop their new parks, including the now infamous Rail Deck Park. On August 3, 2016, the city announced plans for a new project in the heart of downtown, an 8.5 hectare long and thin park at Front Street West, stretching across Bathurst Street to Blue Jays Way. The park would be built on an elevated deck spread out over the Union Station Rail Corridor. That way, the train tracks below can still be used while the park is above it. This project was inspired by the Hudson Yards in New York City and Millennium Park in Chicago, which are two outdoor park spaces built on top of railroads and a major parking garage. A few months later, the bill finally clocked out at costing over $1.66 billion, some of which would have been collected by allowing other building developers in the city to build above height or density guidelines in exchange for cash. This was going to be the project of a new era, something to mark Toronto as an adaptive metropolitan. For their showcase project, it really would have fit the expand and connect objectives of the 2019 plan 
by creating a new park in the fastest growing area of Toronto. Additionally, having this new bigger park in the same proximity as the nearby smaller parks can help to strengthen the green network further downtown. But that was five years ago. Where are we now? Well, it's all up in the air. Metrolinx owns the tracklands, but since this park would have been above ground, you need to buy the air rights to build up, which at that point was owned by Kraft Acquisitions Corporation. Kraft wanted to build a mixed-use community of towers on that space, aka residential condos for the most part. Well, the city rejected the proposal submitted by Kraft and Pitt's development in 2018. Apparently the staff had also told them privately back in 2016 to just drop the project. Fast forward back to now, in 2021, and the local planning appeals tribunal declared that the city was wrong to reject the proposal, and since there wasn't enough action happening for the rail deck, Kraft should be able to proceed with their plans. Since then, Kraft's president, Robert Sabato, has offered to either sell the air rights for $340 million, lease the rights for $25 million a year, or to negotiate some type of sharing of the land. Keeping in mind though that this is on top of the nearly $1.7 billion to put it together. Things are not looking hot right now. The city's back to concept and redesigning, though the general public believes that's all over for the project now, especially if Kraft and Pitts move on to the next steps for their tower developments. But we've seen it ourselves, how important it was for us to get outside during COVID. For downtown citizens, it can be so difficult to access a piece of green space for yourself when you're competing with thousands of your neighbors in the core. Or maybe you're totally over talking about the suits living in their glass towers and you want something done about your local park. Maybe there's not even a park at all. What are we supposed to do in those situations? Well, our guest this episode will give us better insight about what the city is up to and where it's down bad. So today I'm joined here with Willow. Willow, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great. I'm so happy to have you here to talk about Toronto and green spaces and all things city related. Why don't we start with you talking a bit about yourself? How are you involved? Sure. So I'm actually a fourth year University of Toronto student pursuing a degree in urban studies and human and environmental geography. I'm very involved in sustainability and city building as the current sustainability commissioner on the University College Literary and Athletic Society as well as the co-president of the Toronto Undergraduate Geography Society. And something a bit about me that kind of inspired my involvement in public green space is that I am from Vancouver Island, which is a small island off the coast of BC, <laughs> which is known for its old growth forests and spectacular nature. So having always felt very connected to nature, when I came to Toronto, I wanted to explore environmentalism in the urban context. Awesome. So you've got a bit of both worlds with green in the city. So why don't we begin with our first question? What are some of the larger scale benefits that come from the community accessing public green spaces? And how can we kind of see these over time? I would say the most immediate benefit of public green space is, of course, that of health, whether that be physical, mental, or even emotional health. In terms of physical health, of course, we have extra space to exercise and be active with public green space. 
but it also provides clean air and climate regulation, which sometimes I think we take for granted. Mm -hmm. And even now in our time of climate change, I find public green space to be so much more necessary. And the more trees there are in an area, the more shaded that area will be. And the heat island effect of urban spaces will be minimized. I think, you know, for those who maybe aren't familiar with the heat island effect, it's basically the idea that urban areas experience higher temperatures than non-urban areas, since structures like buildings and concrete roads often absorb and readmit solar heat. Me personally, I'm kind of a whimsical person. <laughs> and I think humans often tend to forget that we are as much a part of nature as nature is a part of us. Yes. I think, yeah, I think being immersed in nature is a truly special experience that can calm and heal us. And, you know, that goes back to um, even indigenous ways of connecting with the land. And I think it's so important for us to incorporate that in our own relationship with nature. And public green space offers a lot of opportunities for that. Something else that is really important for communities, especially in the long, longer term, is that public green space plays a major role in flood risk management. Mm -hmm. So because so much of Toronto's surface is impermeable with concrete roads everywhere and you know, huge skyscrapers, there is a greater risk of flooding in the event of rainstorms and other climate events. So I wasn't in Toronto in 2013, but I'm sure many people will remember that in July, there was a massive flood that caused millions and millions of dollars of damage. And as a result, there were actually, I believe, hundreds or maybe even thousands of people that were displaced from their homes, which were flooded as a result of that storm. Whoa. So, yeah, yeah. So this is definitely like, I can't even emphasize just how important public green space is. Like having more of that green space allows us to make sure that the hydrological process continues as it's meant to and that flood risks are lowered. And, you know, that ties into not only the desire to maintain our infrastructure and make sure it doesn't degrade quickly, but also just health and safety. I think that is such an important part of living in cities, especially now during our time of climate change. And, you know, public green space does really help when we're speaking to that context. So there are many benefits of communities accessing green space. And let's not forget about the social benefits as well. They're obviously great gathering spaces for people to play and interact. I think a lot of the time we tend to get caught up in the busy day-to-day -day life of work and school and all of our responsibilities. And public green spaces provide an opportunity for us to just relax and reconnect with one another as well as playing a fundamental role in building a relationship between humans and nature. Yeah, and you name so many different kind of spheres where the interaction occurs with our personal selves, with our social circles, and also with the environment. It seems like there's such an overwhelming amount of positives to come from urban green spaces. Mm -hmm. But it's a real shame that not everyone gets to enjoy it. Can you talk a bit more about some groups that are excluded from public spaces? Definitely. In a city like Toronto, where gentrification is obviously rampant, we see rental prices just going through the roof. We're seeing more and more that areas with accessible green spaces are becoming very expensive to live in. 
as property values and prices continue to climb, more and more lower income people who I should also mention are often disproportionately racialized mm -hmm. are being pushed to the outskirts of the city where public green space is very limited. So access to public green space is becoming more and more of an equity issue. Those who can't afford to live in the city or can't afford to live near green space are often, they just can't, they can't afford it. So mm -hmm. I think a lot of work has to be done to make sure that these communities and these individuals do have access to green space. Because like I mentioned earlier, communities that don't have that access are more at risk of flood risk and the heat island effect. Mm -hmm. And that actually connects to environmental racism. It is very much an equity issue. And I believe earlier you were speaking to Rail Deck Park a little bit. Yeah. And I think it's a I think it's a great initiative, like reimagining that piece of the downtown core in general, since I would say downtown is lacking green space. However, it is also important to think about who has the most immediate access to that space. So I know it's very close to Waterfront, which is one of the most beautiful places in the city, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, um, sure. And, you know, given its location in one of the most sought after areas in Toronto, it is arguably out of reach for the everyday person who cannot afford to live in that area. But that being said, it does seem to be right in the hub of Toronto Transit, which I suppose does allow it to become more accessible. And I think any new green space is definitely good. Like I won't fight any, any new green space, but I do think we have to start thinking about equitable green space and asking questions like, which communities are most in need of access to green space and how can we solve that problem and prioritize those communities? Yeah, there's so many gaps in the system right now in terms of spaces that are being gentrified, places where population is really accelerating, as well as places where green spaces are barren. It seems like there's so many problems propping up around the city right now. And do you know of any other projects in other cities that we could take inspiration from? So just from my own research, since I, I do focus on environmentalism a lot for my studies, so London, England actually recently created a comprehensive London environmental strategy that focuses on air quality, green infrastructure, climate change mitigation, and a low carbon circular economy, to name a few. And something I really admire about this strategy is that London as, as a city has taken the initiative to ensure that their citizens are not only protected from climate change, but also very involved in the decision-making process, as well as sustainability initiatives. Something I really like about this plan is that the city employs both a top-down and a bottom-up approach to sustainability, which basically means that citizens can become leaders in their communities for stewardship and sustainability. You know, that could be through urban agriculture or even community gardens, but they do that with municipal support and resources. Toronto is doing a good job, I would say, of supporting some of these bottom-up groups. But I think more and more we need to see more action happening with that integrated top-down, bottom-up approach. The London Environmental Strategy also provides concrete policy action for decision-makers 
as well as a pretty strict implementation plan, which I believe keeps politicians accountable to actually make those changes happen. I think lots of cities could probably draw inspiration from the initiative that London has taken. That's so cool. I've never heard about that project in London happening. It seems like over there, environmentalism must be really big on their agenda. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how Toronto, as such a major city in Canada, will approach something in a similar way. But speaking about what's happening here, do you know of any other projects aside from the Rail Deck Park happening to encourage engagement in public spaces? Mm-hmm. So I would say one of the biggest projects happening in Toronto right now is actually that of the Toronto Island Park Master Plan. So City of Toronto has recently embarked on reimagining Toronto Island Park and a huge part of that, which I actually had the opportunity to be involved in it last summer as an engagement student, a huge part of that is making sure that everyone's voice is brought to the table. So public engagement in a way that is very intentional, but also very equitable. So making sure that racialized folks, LGBTQ plus folks, historically excluded folks are actually part of the conversation. And I think something really interesting, just in the context of COVID, is that the way that public engagement happens now is vastly different from how it happened or how it worked even just a couple of years ago. Because prior to COVID, all public engagement was done in person. And online engagement was meant to be a complementary sort of faucet to the broader in-person engagement strategies. So never before was online engagement the primary tool for actually reaching out to people and gathering their input. Even with that, there are pros and cons in terms of bringing different people to the table. On one side, it actually does increase accessibility for people who haven't become involved in feedback processes to actually be able to voice their opinion and voice their want for the future of Toronto Island. By having things online, certain people such as like mothers who typically can't go out to a local community center to voice their opinions are able to do that. Similarly, with people who work long hours and can't make it during the typical, you know, nine to five. But on the flip side, even though having things online does increase accessibility in some ways, there are a lot of communities that still don't have adequate access to internet. So that also raises an equity issue because how are we supposed to hear from them if they can't even access the online forms? I know myself, my my grandparents are from Portugal. They live in Etobicoke. They don't know a word of English and they don't have <laughs> they don't have any internet. So even if they wanted to help shape the future of different projects like Toronto Island, they wouldn't be able to because they just don't have access to the internet. From the sounds of it, there are so many voices, but you know, there is a sneaking suspicion that the people who actually get listened to probably have more power and influence than say your grandparents in Etobicoke. So mm-hmm. I'm just curious, like, did you have any ideas for how to kind of spread consultation for access like that? Well, I think something that, you know, the city of Toronto probably is doing is allowing people to phone in and provide their thoughts that way. So that would help with the lack of internet access. But at the same time, it doesn't really 
help with the language barrier. Those are definitely conversations that need to be had about how can everyone shape their city despite these differences and despite these potential barriers. This kind of relates back to the idea um, of everyone's right to the city. If you're familiar with it, it's Mm -hmm. basically the idea that every citizen, I mean, whether you're a legal citizen or not, it doesn't matter. Everyone has the right to shaping the area around them and seeing their city become what they want it to be. So I think that plays a hugely important role in any sort of public engagement process, but especially now where different communities are falling between the cracks. There are so many reasons that we've kind of been going over about having more public green spaces, having more engagement, having more pieces of local pride in comparison to other cities as well. What action do you think it will take before governments really take us as citizens seriously about moving forward with these projects? Um, I think the power of community organizing can never be underestimated. There are so many amazing organizations in Toronto that band together and use their collective voice to lobby for greater environmental action and equity. One of those organizations off the top of my head is Climate Justice TO. They do amazing work. And, you know, this is kind of a side note, but I think any environmental action that is taken has to center equity in it. Environmentalism without equity just doesn't work. So a huge part of that is actually making sure that we all use our voices and also stand in solidarity with those communities who are you know, lacking public green space or experiencing environmental racism by banding together and having a really organized, you know, lobbying campaign, it can really make a difference. So in my capacity as the current sustainability commissioner on the UC Lit, I do a lot of work with other University of Toronto climate groups. And one of the things we do is, you know, lobbying for divestment from fossil fuels, but also centering equity in a way that, you know, we stand with Indigenous communities, like against pipelines, and we stand with Black Lives Matter because environmental racism is real. Like there are so many different ways that the different communities can find ways to connect with one another. And I think by forging and enforcing those bonds between communities that may not seem as connected at first sight, I think by continuing to create those connections, we can all come together as a united front and you know demand that government actually makes these changes with the budget to reflect it. Totally, like we outnumber them on the table. Yeah. But what kind of roles or people do you think are missing from the decision-making committees? I know Mm -hmm. you mentioned a few different types of people like racialized folks or indigenous folks, but what kind of positions or ways can we integrate these groups into the decision committees? Something I would say is, you know, just on a side note, I, I really want to give props to a lot of these community organizations that do center equity because there's actually a very amazing local nonprofit in Toronto called LEAF, which is Local Enhancement and Appreciation of Forests. They host every year, they host a four month long program called Young Urban Forest Leaders. And that program is specifically tailored to historically excluded groups. So racialized, LGBTQ, Indigenous women, it really emphasizes the need for these 
this kind of representation in urban forestry and stewardship. So I had the opportunity to get involved with that in 2019. And I swear I'm not sponsored, but if <laughs> if you can take it, if you can get involved, I highly recommend it. It's a totally free program. They equip you with the knowledge you need about urban forestry, but also allow you to develop skills on community engagement practices and how to become a leader in your neighborhood to see that change happen. Because sometimes government doesn't even know that there's a need for public space in an area. Like even though it, it might be so obvious to us and it should be obvious to them, sometimes they need that extra push to realize, oh, we need something happening here. We need some public green space. While that shouldn't be the sole responsibility of community members, for those community leaders, it can be a really great way to bridge that gap between community and government. You know, that's obviously not a substitute for having that representation at the decision-making table itself, but it is a start in terms of getting racialized and LGBTQ and Indigenous and other historically excluded folks in those professional roles. A lot of that has to come from the city itself. We need to demand that there be more diversity, you know, holding government accountable if all we see are white men dictating, you know, whether this marginalized community gets public green space or not. I think it all comes down to what you've been saying about it is all about community, whether or not you are a taxpayer who has a stake in the game, or if you're just a person who lives in Toronto, or if you're a person visiting Toronto, everybody has that Mm -hmm. access to public space and everybody should have a say in it. Before we close it out, though, where can we find you or your projects? What are you up to, Willow? Um, currently, I am uh, working for, it's actually kind of interesting that you invited me to this panel because I have been so involved in green space. Uh, but currently, I am helping with an inclusive communities project actually out in Nova Scotia. That's been really great to get involved in. It's really great to see cities starting to make those equitable changes that need to happen and opening up the door for that greater representation, just in terms of following along with me and what I'm up to. I am happy to connect with people on LinkedIn. You can find me at just my name, Willow Cabral, and I will be happy to have a conversation or coffee chat over Zoom. So yeah. Thank you so much for joining me today. You can also find Willow on her podcast, City Zen Podcast by Plan U of T. So thank you so much for your expertise today, Willow. It was great speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So you've heard it here. Green spaces are so important for a city to operate. Parks can really function as a hub for so many health, social, cultural, and environmental benefits. Some we might not even know about yet. The Rail Deck Park may be in limbo right now, But let's hold out for hope that Toronto will be able to create more parks that can be properly enjoyed by everyone in the city. Next, on our final episode, we'll be discussing the future of the city based on everything we've been discussing up until now. My name is Rawson, this is our concrete garden, and I'll be seeing you one last time.